welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Hello and welcome and I'm releasing this episode on Bank Holiday Monday of a challenging wet one where hospitality is currently only trading outdoors if at all. And lots of very motivated and patient customers sat under umbrellas and wrapped in blankets and once more I feel proud of the hospitality sector for just getting on with what can often seem ridiculous guidelines. Looking at customers in the freezing cold and wind with an empty restaurant just a few feet away is very very difficult when hospitality is hardwired into your soul. But seeing the team running around with blankets and heaters and umbrellas and trying to assure that everyone is still smiling makes me very, very proud and reaffirms my love for this fantastic sector. So much more about being human than being a business. Anyway, best of luck to you if you're trying to operate at the moment or if you're a customer and you're trying to warm up over your icy cold beer. Hopefully, we will be back open indoors again soon across the country. Now, I think you are going to fall in love with Dan, today's guest, and the Lake District farmers for a whole heap of reasons. Firstly, the Lake District is just an utterly stunning part of the world, so anything that we can do to support it and the way of life that has been going on there for hundreds of years, I personally think is really important. Traditional farming, where animals can roam free on the fells, for me is a big part of this. Not only does it protect a way of life and lead to happy animals literally a million miles away from modern intensive production techniques, but clearly it creates nicer animals for the food system too. Lake District farmers supply most of the best chefs and the best restaurants in the country, as you are about to discover. But more than that, This is also a tale of perseverance, of business acumen, of learning and making things up as you go, of responding to business catastrophe and adapting fast to keep the business running. Dan and his team's perseverance and commitment comes across in so many of the stories that he tells. Whether that's being found half-clothed, having slept in the delivery van before meeting an important potential customer, or relocating the entire business over a weekend following a fire or simply realising that if you have a 1 in 100 chance of making something happen, you've just got to repeat it 100 times. And we also touch on the ethics of meat consumption and the carbon impact of our diets, so plenty in here for everyone. I very much hope you enjoy the chat, and if you do, as always, a review on your podcast player of choice is hugely appreciated, or get in touch and send me your feedback via the website humansofhospitality.com. .co.uk, where you can also become a patron or make a one-off donation to keep this podcast on the air and advert-free and motivate me to keep finding awesome humans to chat with. Right, let's go and meet Dan. Enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Dan Austin, Managing Director of Lake District Farmers. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciate you uh, sparing the time to chat. Can I just ask, Dan, because unfortunately, Despite the fact that I love the Lake District, we're not face to face. But where in the world are you this morning, Dan? Uh, I am on I'm on Walney Island this morning um, by the beach. Um, it's very ironic because it's, it's got a beach and it's in Cumbria and we rarely get sun, but um, we do have some nice sunshine today, so it's beautiful. So where's that then? Is that is that on the coast? Is it or? Yeah, so I live in in Barrow in Furness, um, ah, okay. which is a big shipbuilding town, BA Systems, um, etc. Our animals are sourced throughout the Lake District, so Langdale, yeah. Borodale, etc. Um, but I am a, a Barrow boy, born and bred, and uh, Walney is uh, a little island just off Barrow in Furness. Amazing. All right. Well, I'm by the beach as well, so that makes me feel better. I was going to be deeply envious because I imagined you, I don't know, sat on the sort on the top of a stone wall on a fell, sort of, you know, smoking a pipe, looking out over the lakes. But, you know, we're, we're yeah, coastal brothers, so that's uh, that's better. I'm um, doing that on Monday, so. Oh, will you? Oh, man. <laughs> 
Damn, I want to be up there. Uh, right, you represent some incredible farms, in, and genuinely, you know, I think I think the Lake District must be one of the most beautiful places on the planet, let alone in England. I, I adore it. Um, but for those who've not heard of, of uh, Lake District farmers, can you just explain to people a little bit about? Yeah, what what do you do as a business? I mean, basically, we we represent a farming cooperative, um, and I would say the Lake District farmers is is the shop window um, for brilliant farms who produce in a brilliant way um, and just create excellent products. I mean, if you like, I can tell you a little bit about how it started, where the idea came from. If you want to. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that, actually, but I like that. That's a really simple opener. You know, brilliant, yeah, brilliant farmers, brilliant produce. So we, we will come into how it started. But just to give people a context as to, you know, how much you've achieved, I suppose, we'll, we'll start a little bit deeper into the journey because you uh, look after some incredible restaurants, some of the best chefs in the country. You know, when you look back over the last uh, decade that it's been running, are, are there any particular events or particular customers that you're particularly proud to serve? You know, we're incredibly proud of, of our entire customer base. Like you said, we work with some incredible chefs. Um, I think if we talk about sort of pivotal moments, um, I think the first big one for us was was Marcus Waring um, because we were a very, very young company back in 2009 um, and we had this great product, but we didn't have any reputation. You know, we'd only been, been going sort of three, four months or whatever. Um, and we knew that we, we had to work with somebody of real caliber so that people would take us seriously uh, and would look at our product. And I remember talking and talking with uh, Alan Williams, who was head chef at the back at the time with Marcus. And um, I promised him if he took a sample from us, it would be the best beef, the best lamb he'd ever tasted. Um, and I said, if not, I'll give you a farm for free. Now, wow. I, didn't, I didn't have a farm to give him that because I don't want a farm. Um, so it was a very, very big gamble. I just wanted to really convince him. Do you think he believed you? Do you think he believed he was really going to get a farm? <laughs> I think he found it quite amusing, Al. He's a great guy, he's Alan. Um, so he he took these samples <clears throat> and he called us after we tried them and uh, and he said, yeah, you know, let, let's sit down, let's do some business. And and that, that really changed everything for us because at that stage, I was a 21-year-old boy. You know, I, I was walking into restaurants, very young man, no reputation, and, and I'm trying to work with the very, very best in the industry with, with no real credibility at that stage. Um, so when I was able to walk in and say, you know, we, we supply Marcus Waring, and people would listen you know they thought that this must be a quality product um if marcus is using it and then uh, of course we've had the opportunity to work with so many fantastic chefs after that you know gordon ramsay jason atherton angela hartnett tom akins brett graham um phil howard we we've worked with the very very best so we're very Look lucky are there any are there any great chefs right that you don't supply where you keep thinking ah why is it that because it literally when when i read the list of, of who's playing like my god that's everybody you know but are there, are there any where you've been knocking on the door and they've not quite given in yet that like, this might be the opportunity we're going to embarrass them and say look at all these others that are doing it <laughs> um, well we uh, you know we're not knocking on any doors um just at the moment but um when, when we start to knock on some doors i'm sure there's there's a few more names <laughs> I was going to get a name out of your hot list. Was like, yeah, just... was that? It was very diplomatic, wasn't it? <laughs> you were like a politician. I was <laughs> like, he's going to have a little list there. He's got a post-it note on his desk where he's going, right, who am I ringing this afternoon? Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be one of those Oliver bloody guys. Or uh, No, good. There's, there's none left. So um, you, we'll, we'll, we will come back to the to the sort of start of that, how you did it and stuff like that. But, but um, you know, is there a problem you're trying to solve, I suppose? Because apart from obviously you've got to be a business, you've got to raise some cash. Um, but, you know, is, is there a problem? Is, is there a problem? with intensive farming or is there a specific problem with the route to market for for some of the incredible farmers you represent you know what what was it you were trying to do apart from run a business um i think the first thing we wanted to do was was give farms proper support um i mean i i grew up on my granddad's farm um, and he was a wonderful man my granddad um my hero really and i would see him get up every day 5 a.m and he worked incredibly hard, you know, and he, and he really looked after his animals. He had such a special relationship with his animals. And, and when we started Lake District Farmers, I guess it was just as simple as wanting to give people like him a, a proper price, a fair price and a proper support. And I guess enable people to give their animals a better life. 
um, and produce a better product. And, and that was what it was all about. It's a little bit like fair trade. You know, we, we say we will we will pay you a better price. We'll pay you an above market price. Um, what we want in return for that is is incredible quality. Uh, and of course, we want the animals to be looked after and, and respected and treated incredibly well. Um, and all of the farmers that we work with are such passionate people. They, they really care about their animals. I think that the problem pre-LDF was that these farms put so much cost and so much effort into producing these animals perfectly and really looking after them. And then when they took them to the auction mat, they get put in the ring with every other animal that's been produced. Um, and there is a market price for that animal on that day. Um, what we wanted to be for these farms was the company that said, you know, we will take X amount of animals from you every single week or every other week, whatever that agreement may be, and we will pay you X price across the entirety of the year. So you have a regular income, you know what you can invest um, into those animals, you know that you're going to be paid that price regardless of, of what's happening in the market. Uh, if there is an influx, as an example, of, of products that comes from overseas um, and the market price drops, we will still pay you the same price because we know that your costs are still the same. So it's just taking taking farms, I guess, off that roller coaster of market fluctuation and saying, you produce for us every week and we'll pay the same every week. Um, mm. Our restaurants, you know, on the back of that as well, our restaurants know that they're creating sustainability through their purchase. Um, and they also know that they're going to get consistent pricing from us because if we're paying the same price, we can afford to charge the same price. And it just gives everybody that consistency. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? So what, of course, because well, it, it does seem you know absolutely crazy that how you know how can you know yeah the, you know how, what what you know what wider whether it's feed or, or how much space you can give those animals or yeah how well you can treat them if the price is constantly fluctuating you don't know what the end sale price is going to be it must be almost impossible to farm in any other way how did we get into this this problem is this the you know the story of the big bad supermarkets again driving uh you know the, the price of stuff to the bottom or was it just a change in consumer trends where maybe these farms before were supplying you know the the, the local butchers what what had happened that because because presumably this was putting the traditional way of farming in the lake district at risk if you couldn't find a, a better route to market then that style that lack of intensive farming uh, presumably would have would have had to disappear so yeah what what would cause the problem in the first place um i think that um I think the supermarkets have certainly played a part. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody could really sit here and say that that they haven't. Um, I think there's still a great deal of supermarkets out there that that don't buy British produce. Um, certainly not um, across the entire range. I think Morrison's is an example. You know, they they made a stance and said we're going to buy all British, and, and that is absolutely superb. You know, price as ever is is driven by supply and demand, isn't it? So if, as an example, Every supermarket in this country said, we're going to buy all British produce. The demand would be huge um, and, and the supply would, would have to measure up to that. And that would mean that British farmers got um, a better price. Um, trends is, is definitely a part of it too. Um, you know, lamb as an example, at, at Easter, everybody wants lamb. And the price of lamb is huge for that sort of four to six week period um it's also the time in which your, your hoggets which are your last year's lambs um, are very very low on the ground and there's only a few left and your spring lambs are just coming up to being ready so your supply is actually quite short and your demand is is huge um but then after that six week period that the price starts to go down again so seasonality and trends definitely play their part too and i, and I think that sometimes we're just not educated enough on on the food that we're buying and the impact that, that our purchasing trends have um and i think these sorts of of conversations are incredibly important i mean let's let's look at venison as an example you know we've got a, a problem in the uk with um overpopulation of, of wild deer and we have some huge businesses within this country importing venison how how can that be the case? It's, uh, it's crazy. I don't know, Dan. Are you going to tell us? <laughs> um, you, you know how diplomatic I am, Matt. But it's, um, it, it, <laughs> Who's fault was it, Dan? Come on. Spill you know, the beans. The, the nuts and bolts are we have an overpopulation of venison in this country and, and we have 
you know, some supermarket chains importing venison. It's uh, it's because it's cheaper. And it's crazy. I, I think we all have to take some responsibility. Yeah. Well, that is exactly the reason why I launched this podcast was the frustration of, uh, I suppose, you know, in, in my side of the, the world at the service end of the hospitality trade was the, you know, the sort of growth in the multinational big corporates. Yeah. Doing exactly the same thing in the restaurant world as maybe the supermarkets are doing, which is importing rubbish produce and making it sound sexy on a menu. And you thinking, God, you know, there's an opportunity here. If the consumer was better educated and if they spend their pound better, then it really can transform the sort of world we live in. So it, it's as exactly why we're having this conversation it, it must feel like quite a responsibility because presumably you know is, is it fair to say that if you hadn't found a way of, of getting you know a, a premium market to sell to where you can guarantee these prices which is challenging to do and you've done that you know through finding the best chefs and the best some of the best restaurants in london if you hadn't done that do you think some of these farms you know would no longer exist and wouldn't be following that sort of more traditional farming method um I think, you know, LDF, we, we never like to sit here and, and say that these farms have survived because of us. Um, we've we've definitely been the shop window for these farms. And there's been plenty of farmers that have said to us um, that, you know, without without LDF, it's very possible that these farming methods would, uh, would disappear. Um, I think we've still got a hell of a lot of work to do. Um, and, and we are going to have to work incredibly hard to make sure that we can continue to maintain these farming methods. I mean, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges that we have in front of us over the next few years is, um, you know, with our exit from, from Europe, um, the, the grant funding from Europe is going to stop. And um, for a lot of hill farms, um, the European grants are absolutely what keep them going. You know, that, that was put into place to make food cheaper. Um, it did allow farms to essentially produce at a loss and, and still remain sustainable. Um, and the biggest challenge for us is is going to be replacing that revenue uh, over the next seven years as it's phased out because it's a huge amount of revenue. I, th- I think a lot of people have this image of, you know, a, a farmer who is a millionaire and owns thousands of, of acres of, of land um, and also gets these grants from government or European government, if you look at a lot of our farms, um, you know, a lot of our Herdwick farms, as an example, they're actually leased from the National Trust. Um, so these guys aren't millionaires. You know, they do it out of passion. They work seven days a week. They're up and down a fell at, at two to 3,000 feet. Um, you can't go up there with a quad bike because you just can't get up there um, with a quad bike. And they have to go up and, and shepherd and look after and check on their animals who are essentially wild really pretty much in the lake district um and without that grant funding um that way of life could well become unsustainable so we've got to look at how we can replace that revenue because the last thing we want to do is end up buying produce from farms that are you know producing on a mass scale and um, we always want to be that that specialist route with that really exceptional product and that romantic story i guess of, of animals just being really looked after because mm. this isn't it isn't as simple as it is just by british or by foreign it's not only by british but it's also you know by british but but ideally certainly if uh, you know with our ethics and ethos and perhaps quality which which we'll come on to but it's you know it's by the traditional breeds it's by from more traditional farms is is it realistic well i suppose that you know to describe the sort of the sort of farms then that you represent and you you alluded to it then i suppose but you know what what makes them special these are these are high there's no fences the animals are outside most of the year i suppose you know what's what's different about the farmers you represent compared to what i suppose is the more dominant and, and i'll call it intensive uh, farming that i guess is, is is dominating the country well it, it's like you said mate it's pretty much it's traditional against modern um you know modern farming methods have been created um, to produce animals for less money. You know, that that's where these modern techniques have come from. Um, if we do a quick comparison between, you know, Herdwick sheep and your usual commercial sheep, something like a, a Texel, um, you know, a Herdwick is, is a highland sheep. So basically, um, they will be lambed on lowland, they'll be born on lowland, um, and the farmer will look after them for that first sort of two to three weeks whilst the, um, you know, the taking to mom and just check that everything's okay uh, and that they're able to feed from mom, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then after three weeks, those those sheep will be at the fell gate and they will want to go up the fell. They want to go two to 3,000 feet and they want to be in their natural environment where there is absolutely no fences whatsoever. And the herdwicks have an incredible hefting instinct. So when they go up on the fell, they will stay on that fell for the rest of their lives. You will get the odd wanderer. <laughs> and, and we've had sheep that have gone, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles uh, and then bring, uh, being brought back. But as a general rule, they, they will stay on that fell because of their hefting instinct. Sorry, what's hefting then? Hefting is basically that they will stay in the same place. They don't need fences to control them. They don't need fences to manage them. And um, they know what home is and they know where home is. I, I'll tell you an incredible story, Mark. We had a farmer. And he sold um, a Herdwick Yow to a, a farm on the coast near Workington. Uh, now, this farmer um, was right in the centre of the Lake District. Um, and this animal had got out of the farm in Workington. It had got out of the field and it made its way home. <laughs> it literally made its way home around 50 miles. Wow. Um, really? And it's just that hefting instinct of knowing where home is. Um, it, it's it's quite incredible. In fact, the farmer laughed and said to me, it's the only sheep I've ever sold twice. <laughs> uh, because he told, he told this farmer that it had made his way back and he didn't believe him. So he said, it's the only sheep I've ever sold twice. Wow. Um, so if you, if you look at that, up at, you know, two and 3,000 feet of sea level, uh, on the fells of the Lake District, you get all these incredible nutrients and mosses and grasses and that, that variation to the diet. Um, and the sheep are incredibly fit because they're up and down, up and down, they're working incredibly hard. And it's all of those different things that contribute to this incredible flavor profile. And because they're produced in, in that natural setting, our herdwigs will be a minimum, minimum of 12 months old, minimum 12 months before they come into LDF. Um, anywhere between sort of 12 and, and 22 months, really. Uh, whereas if you look at a commercial sheep, it will be, you know, born on lowland, produced on lowland. It'll be given some feed uh, to finish it before it goes in, into the, the commercial market, whether wherever its end user is. And they will live for around what, five, six months. So they live for half the time um and on on lowland pastures um with a diet of just sort of grass really as opposed to really living a life and, and going up and living on the fell and having all these beautiful different arrays of, of grasses available to them i mean on one of our farms they have 86 different varieties of traditional grasses it's like a, a buffet wow. sheep up there but it's just their natural environment it's where they want to be and we're not changing their natural environment to suit a cost center. We're just saying if that's how they want to live and that's how they've always lived, we should respect that. Um, and if it takes a little bit longer, that doesn't matter. Um, let's respect the way the animals lived for hundreds of years. So what's your perception? Is this how all meat should be produced and, and we should just you know pay more and respect it and maybe eat less or is this always going to be a niche sort of premium end of the market and actually you need that intensive system to feed people we we did an article years and years ago i always remember it um it's with a it was a girl called elizabeth hewson um i think she's called elizabeth chapman now she was a wonderful wonderful lady and um brett graham um who's at the ledbury and put me in touch with uh, Elizabeth. She's an Australian like Brett. Um, and she had such a huge passion for cattle and cattle production and doing things properly. And she just really loved cattle, you know, as an animal. She, she deeply respected them. And um, she asked if she could come and visit some of our farms for um, a, a piece that she was writing. Um, and we took her on a farm to her and she wrote this brilliant piece about how wine should uh, meat should be treated like wine. We should understand the region. We should understand how it's been produced. We should understand what makes it special. Uh, we should respect it in, in the same way and we should eat it less but pay more. Um, and in this piece, she said that if we um, cut down our meat consumption by half, essentially half the world would be vegetarian and we could afford to pay twice as much for that piece of meat when we ate it and we could buy from responsible producers who really looked after their animals um, and for me 
if I could pick one where the world should be, that would probably be it. Um, I think we should eat meat a little bit less, but when we do eat it, we should really enjoy it and make sure that we've sourced it from, you know, a sustainable um, farm that's that's really looked after the animals. I mean, let, let's have a talk about carbon. You know, one of my, my huge frustrations is um, that it's in the press all the time about the carbon impact, the environmental impact of, of beef. But how, how is beef categorized as one product? How are we taking all of these different methodologies of producing beef from around the world and putting them in one section and saying that's the carbon impact of beef? You know, if you compare Australian to American to even mass-produced British and then against Lake District farmers, British production, these are very, very different methods of production. And the carbon impacts of each are, are hugely different. And I think we've got to start reporting information more accurately and not just throwing a headline out there that people are going to read. Um, and I think that, again, that fits in with piece that Elizabeth wrote because buying responsibly is not just about making sure that the animal's been looked after and that the farmer has been looked after. It's also about making sure that the planet has been looked after in the production of, of that animal as well. Um, so if I could pick uh, a way in which we should consume meat, that that would be it okay do we need animals then to you know because some people would say just don't eat don't eat meat animals are happy they'll do their own thing is that is that unrealistic do we actually need animals to you know for the environment i know in the sort of circular farms the, the nutrients you know cows walking across a field can can churn up the grass and, and their sort of you know feces kind of you know adds nutrients back and then you know other animals come in and eat that grass or we grow stuff in it do you think they're an essential part of the sort of agricultural cycle or, or are they a luxury um, I absolutely believe they are, but um, I don't think that, that I'm really able to sit here and answer that question. Um, but, but I certainly believe that they are. Um, I don't think the answer is to stop eating meat if, if we don't want to stop eating meat. I think the answer is to, to produce it more responsibly. Um, I mean, just as an example, we, we've engaged with a uh, university over the past 18 months, um, we're doing a sample study on four of our cattle farms at the moment. Um, and the aspiration is to, as quickly as possible, get these farms to a point where they are carbon neutral. And then as soon as we've got four farms that are carbon neutral, we'll use that as a case study, as a comparison. And then we'll look at you know another two of our farms. Let's get them up to being carbon neutral. Then let's look at another four of our farms. Let's get them up to being carbon neutral. And as a business, Lake District farmers would like to be carbon neutral. And I think that that's the answer. Um, you know, if, if you look at um, agriculture and, and the production of meat, you know, this, this goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't think that we have to stop eating meat. I think we have to look at how did we used to do it? Let's look at how we how we used to do it hundreds of years ago. Let's go back to, to that sort of traditional, less intensive way of farming um, and let's make it environmentally sustainable and a product that people can respect and enjoy. I think that's the answer. Mm. What are those farms changing then to become carbon neutral? Is this it's not one of these ones where you just go and, you know, invest in a load of trees in the Amazon or whatever. This is genuinely changing the farm specifically, is it, to be carbon neutral? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, planting trees is, is absolutely a part of it um, because it offsets the carbon. That, that's absolutely a part of it. But it's also about, you know, how, how can we be more efficient? As an example, we, we work with a brilliant farmer called Tim, uh, Tim Winder. And Tim is oh, maybe half a mile away from our factory, Tim. Um, brilliant man. And, and he's using um, recycled paper which is too small. Uh, the shreds of paper are too small to be used for anything else, so they would essentially go to um, landfill. And that's what he beds his cattle in. So when it gets incredibly cold and they're, and they're coming inside or, or they're on the finish feed or whatever, um, Tim beds them on this recycled paper. And the cattle absolutely love it. 
and it's incredibly warm for them it's incredibly clean and it actually it just sort of sticks to the coat and then when it dries it just drops off so even um from a you know maintaining a cleanliness perspective it really really works but we're reusing a product that would go for landfill and then it's about you know fish food can we use byproducts in the finish feed for the cattle instead of producing a product to put into feed for the animal? Can we actually use a byproduct to produce that finish feed? And even daft things, Mark, like um, if we buy um, two cattle off Tim a week and then we buy two cattle off Michael a week, actually, can Tim put four cattle in his um, trailer that week and take them down to um the abattoir and the next week can michael put four cattle in, in his trailer and take them down to the abattoir straight away we've just cut down two journeys um to the abattoir so there's a there's a million different things and um, that make it up and of course it's not just as, as simple as planting trees and i'll be honest we've we've really enjoyed looking at it we're really passionate about it uh, and when you start looking at it, it it's amazing the things that you can do that are ever so simple that can cut down your carbon footprint. Mm, I love that. Some 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 good examples there. I think you can't be somewhere as beautiful as the Lake District and not think about protecting the environment in the same way that one of my restaurants overlooks the sea. And you know, when you're watching the beautiful burnt orange skies and the big balls sort of you know dropping over the horizon over the ocean, you can't sit there and look at it and, and in anything but awe and think like everything we can do to protect this. Much as Elon might try and convince us, I'd personally quite happy to live here and not on Mars. It looks a bit rubbish. <laughs> so, um, I, I, we. We touched on this uh, just before we started recording. So I would encourage everybody who's listening has to go to your website and just click on the the farmer's page, I think it is, and watch these beautifully shot videos, choreographed videos that really bring to life some of the stuff that we're chatting about. They're they're absolutely amazing. Unusual, actually. You don't see many farms that have got such such sort of beautiful shots, I suppose, of what's going on. What, What was the inspiration for those and what's the reaction been? The reaction's been uh, been incredible, actually, and because we, we've never done anything like that before. You know, we, we started in, in 2009 uh, and we'd be going down and, and we'd be talking to chefs and we'd be saying these these are the types of farms you deal with and this is the story and this is how it's produced. And people really loved it. And, and what actually started happening was that a lot of restaurants would travel to Cumbria to do a farm tour with us. So um, we'd take them to the factory and take them to, to see some of our farms, see how the animals live, and how everything is, is sort of produced. But we'd never, I guess because we were an industry company, we were never uh, retail-based like district farms. We were always exclusive to restaurants. So we, we'd never really had this this huge need, I guess, to uh, to have a brilliant social media and to be able to convey that message because we were always sat in front of, of chefs talking about it. Um, and when we came to the first lockdown, um, we we very quickly adapted into uh, a retail business to clear the stock that we had left because obviously everything closed overnight and we had this this huge stock hauling because we mature you know beef as an example for five weeks and lamb for two weeks so we had all this stock to clear. And we had an incredible response from a retail perspective, but we didn't have an e-commerce website. So everything was coming through the phone and it, and it was all crazy. So when we cleared the stock, we, we went home and sat down and said, you know, what should we do now? Um, and that's when we developed a, a proper e-commerce website. And we wanted to do all of the things that we never really had time to do. Um, and we wanted to do, you know, produce videos that our restaurants would be able to promote and say this is our product and this is where it comes from uh, and obviously from a retail perspective it's allowed us to get our message out there very very quickly and let people know what we're about yeah so one of the guys that you uh, that you've got on this video eric telforth is it one of your farmers yes. uh, he's got this uh, this this great love for his uh for his sheep, I think it, it, I only watched it once, but I thought well, he almost had a tear in his eye. I almost did as well. And there was another one, I think, of um, of a couple of uh, cows that had been born really close together. They weren't brothers, but they were sort of you know treated as brother. And the, and the level of respect that the farmers had for the animals in, in in sort of you know making sure that they stayed together was amazing. But if we take Eric as an example, you know, can you tell me a bit about about Eric and, and what he does? I'll tell you a funny story about Eric, Mark. Um, and actually, so when you're talking about them two cattle that were born together. The man on that video is a man called Stephen Airy. Um, and when we first started Lake District Farmers, I went to see Stephen 
um, and Stephen is is central to everything that goes on in Cumbria from a farming perspective. Um, and when I talked to him about what we wanted to achieve at Lake District Farms, and this was before we opened, um, I said to Stephen, who should we be talking to? Who Who's producing in the best way? Um, could you give me a list, a list of 10 farmers who I could sit down with? Uh, and one of those farmers was Eric Tilforth. And I went to see Eric. Um, as I said, I was, I was 21 years old. Um, I went with my business partner and my mentor at the time, a man called Ray Armstrong. Uh, Ray was incredible. Um, and uh, we sat in Eric's kitchen. And I said, Eric, you know, we are going to take this product to London. We're going to sell it to the best chefs in the world. We're going to give you an above market price. It's, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. We're going to really, really support you. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I just had this idea. Um, and when I left his farm, Eric said to his wife said to him, sorry, Eric's wife said to him, um, do you think he'll be able to do it? Do you think he'll be able to deliver everything he's just promised? And Eric said, no. And she said, are you going to back him? And he said, yes. And she said, why? And he said, because you just never know. <laughs> I don't think Eric even even believed that we'd be able to achieve this. But um, I've had some incredible moments with Eric. I mean, we've sat at the top of the Birkin together um, and eaten his Herdwick lamb, which was a very very emotional, you know, experience for Eric. Um, we've we've taken him to London to do demonstrations at restaurants where he's he's given speeches. Uh, he'd give a speech for restaurant associates um, at a chef's forum in front of around a thousand people. Um, and it was incredible to listen and to see this, this Cumbrian farmer stored in this huge glass building in the centre of London, um, talking to this huge business um, who's, who have supported him so intimately. And to watch him do that, you know, it, it kind of made me realise the journey that we've been on. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's so much more than, you know, that's why I started with the the business question because it's so much more than that, isn't it? And yeah, that, that's awesome because he just looks, you know, it looks like it's hard work, hard graft for him, you know, pottering around. He's, he, you know, he's, he's, he's an old guy now, I suppose. And uh, yeah. 35, Eric. <laughs> 35 years old. Um, it's just incredibly hard work. Um, I mean, Eric, um, Eric went to be uh, basically to work for... Um, the man who leased Milbeck Farm uh, as a young man. And, and he was there for, for five years um, learning under this gentleman. Um, and, and then he went on to be, uh, you know, the shepherd at Milbeck Farm. It, it's actually a farm which was purchased initially by Beatrix Potter, um, which you'll have seen in the video, no doubt. Beatrix wrote Peter Rabbit, of course, and, and all those amazing novels. But she had a huge passion um, for Herdwick sheep. Um, and she bought, I think it was eight farms that, that she bought, um, and she gave them to the National Trust. Um, but she basically said that they belong to the Herdwick sheep. So when a farmer finishes his lease, he has to give uh, the next tenant who's coming in, they have to, they have to get 400 Herdwick sheep with that farm because Beatrix said that the farm belongs to um, the sheep. So it was actually Beatrix Potter, really, that that started all of these incredible farms um, across the Lake District in the Langdale Valley. Um, and Eric's farm is is one of those. Amazing. Well, lucky sheep, because it's a, it's a beautiful spot. We've, As I said, we come up to Coniston quite regularly, and so we've been to some of the uh, places that uh, I think Beatrix was based near there. And uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely stunning. So then let, let's go back, because... You know, you started this, like you said, you know, really young, uh, twenty-one years of age. What what was your role in those early days? How did you? Because you you know, you weren't just employed; you helped co-found the business. How were you so motivated, and what had you seen that that motivated you to do that? And what was your original role in the business? Well, I'd um, I'd worked for a meat company previously for around two years, um, and it, it was a, it was a pretty good company. It, I was basically office administrator there, really. Um, I kind of ended up with with a job there by accident, if I'm honest. Um, my uncle just offered me it, and I went up there. My plan was to go and do an accountancy course after about three months, and I just fell in love with uh, I fell in love with the industry. I fell in love with the passion of the chefs, um, and for whatever reason, you know that that business that business didn't work out, unfortunately. Um, 
And when that business closed, um, a guy who I'd previously worked for, which is Ray Armstrong, so I'd worked for Ray when I was around 18 years old, uh, Ray came to me and said, do you you want to do a meat business on your own? I've heard you've done really well across the past couple of years and that you've learned a lot. and, And would you like to go out on your own? And I'm thinking, right, wow, okay. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. I've got this incredible businessman who's offering to invest in me and to be my mentor. We know that there's a factory available to lease um, and there's some sort of customer base there um, for us to start off. And, and there's uh, a small team in place that we could also employ straight away. So the infrastructure is there. Um, and as soon as that opportunity arose, I thought this this can be my chance, you know, to to look after farmers, to to look after people like my granddad to really make a difference, I guess, to the industry. Um, so it was a hell of a lot of luck um, and a hell of a lot of belief as well, because for Ray Armstrong to come to me at 21 years old as an office administrator for um, a, a meat company that didn't work out and to say, I'll invest in you and and we'll do this together. Um, that was what allowed us to make it happen. And I kind of did the meat side of things. I was sales director and I was super passionate about the product and the farms and, and where we would source from and chefs we would sell to. But Ray was very, very much the businessman. You know, that, that was the bit that I didn't have. I was hugely naive at that age, no doubt about it. And um, Ray was the man who guided me with, with all the business side of things. And um, without Ray, there is no doubt we wouldn't be where we are today or anywhere near it. Yeah. And, and when you say sales director, this was a startup. So, do, you know, presumably, were you the person who was actually, you know, getting in the car or getting on the train and going down to London? Was, was the target market always the sort of uh, the creme de la creme of, of London restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. Because we knew that, um, I mean, that if you look at the saturation of where the very, very best restaurants were at that time, you know, most of the really, really good restaurants were in London. There was, of course, brilliant restaurants in other parts of the country, but you just had so many in this, you know, in this one city. Um, And of course, the very, very best restaurants can afford to pay the best price for the best produce. So it it just kind of made sense for us to go there. Um, And I'm glad that we I'm glad that we did. So I was the person, yes, who was getting in the van. Um, You know, at that time, Mark, we we had no money, really um at all so i would even go on the train i would i would work um and then when i finished work i would wait for for the driver who was traveling to london with the orders and then i'd get in the van with my pillow um and i'd sleep in the van uh any moment i wasn't sleeping i was annoying the driver listening to Dion or whatever <laughs> singing my heart out um and then i would literally sleep in the van wake up when we got to london um, you know, we'd maybe stop at services to have a splash of water or whatever and a brush of the teeth. Um, and then we'd be into a restaurant and we'd be selling. And then I'd travel back with the van so that we didn't have to pay for hotels either. So n- now we get the train. <laughs> but um, in the early days, we um, we did everything we could to, to save cost where possible. Yeah. And then were you were you literally just sort of, you know, turning up and walking into restaurants or did you have appointments to see these people? You know, what were those early days like and any and any memorable experiences, I suppose, of, uh, yeah, those those early, early wins? There is. Um, so, I mean, I remember one time um, I remember we, we got a call and, and um, somebody had asked me to come and have a meeting with them. They said, it's really, really urgent. It's a big contract. Um, could you come? Could you meet us tomorrow? So I said, yeah. So um, that night I jumped in the van. Um, we went down to um, to London. As I said, didn't have a hotel or anything like that. Um, and I was getting changed out of my pyjamas um, and putting my sort of suit pants and, and my shirt on. Uh, and we parked up around the back of the restaurant. And the owner, who I was meeting for this big contract, comes out of the back door um, and I'm stood there with no top on. Uh, I've just got my um, pyjama pants sort of around my ankles at this stage, and I'm essentially stood in my boxes just about to put the whole suit on so that I look presentable. And he came out and he said, uh, are you Dan from Lake District? And I was like, yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's totally me. Um, if you could just, you know, just give me five minutes, I'm going to get changed. 
and put some Porsche on, mm-hmm. um, and then we'll come in the restaurant and we'll have a coffee. And I, I don't know how, but we actually got that. Um, we, we did get that deal. Um, <laughs> They've got to respect. Surely you've got to respect somebody who goes to that level of effort. To, you know, <laughs> yeah. I guess so. It seemed to work for us on on that day anyway. In that instance, so. That was yeah. great. I've I've got a fishmonger who supplies me down here locally in Bournemouth, and he always insists. I phone him up, and I'm like, "Any chance we could just meet up? Just you know, want to go through some bits?" And he'll be like, "Yeah, no worries, Mark, but I'm going to pop home and you know have a shower and put my suit on." I'm always like, "Look, you don't need to. I just need you for ten minutes. Just come down now, hop in the van." But he always insists that he's going to go and have a shower and put his suit on before he comes to see me. And I and, and much as I find it, you know, quirky and eccentric, I full respect for the fact that he's obviously been doing that for thirty years. And before he goes to see any customer, yeah, he get he gets changed and, and comes out and sees me. So. Good on him. Good on him. Yeah, I, I, I quite like it. Um, not not smooth sailing. I mean, because you make it sound easy, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you know, get brought up by by a granddad, fall in love with me. Some bloke comes and offers you a job when you're only 21, and you get in a get in a van and and you and you flog a bit. I'm sure there were some challenges. Some of which did I read that you you had a fire in 2015 and actually you know lost everything and started again, and then you managed to get caught in a landslide in the new place. So what were some of those sort of yeah teething problem journeys, I suppose, and just how how hard was it uh, to get set up? Yeah, the um, the fire was tough. Um, I mean, it, it was a Saturday afternoon. I always remember it. Saturday afternoon, I was getting my hair cut. Um, and I had this problem with my phone at the time. So even if I had it on loud, it wouldn't make any noise when somebody called me. You know, the tone wouldn't go off. It was like it was permanently on silent. Um, and I was getting my hair cut. And I remember looking at my phone. And I had something like 18 missed calls. And it was, you know... David work, Russell work, Stuart work, Keith work, everybody from work. Um, the, the landlord who we leased the factory from had called me. Uh, my mum had called me. Wow. And um, the big one for me was the local newspaper. <laughs> and, and when I saw the local newspaper, I thought, shit, this is bad. Um, and I called Russ, who's our sales director. And he's been with us a long time, Russ. Um, and he just, he sounded pretty emotional. He said, I, I think you need to get up here now, Dad. Um, so I got in the car with half a haircut, um, and I, I drove up there, um, and when I got there, I think there was six, six fire engines there. And I remember being stood up on a hill with my mum looking down on the factory. We'd climbed up on this hill to look down on it, to try and see what was going on. And you're really emotional in, in those instances and you say stupid things and, and, and there's no rhyme or reason. Um, and I, I remember saying to my mum, it's going to be okay, mum, because um, all the fridges, you know, all the panels are fireproof and all the doors are, are fireproof. Um, and I remember her looking at me and she said, Daniel, you need to start to get your head around it because you need to start to think about what you're going to do because it's not going to be okay, son. And I said, no, it is, it is mum. And she said, no, it, it's not. She said, you've lost everything. It's gone. So... You need to start to think about what you're going to do. You need to start to think about what the next move is. Um, and it must have been a couple of minutes later that the roof sort of fell in on production. And we watched this this roof fall in. Um, and I said to my mum, you know, maybe I should do something different. I've, I've been doing this for years and it's been a good run for us. And um, maybe this is my time to do something different. And uh, I can't really... Say, tell you what my mum said word for word because you'd have to uh, you'd have to edit it out because <laughs> she's a strong Cumbrian woman it's my mum and she she told me exactly how it was um but she basically said that I was I was full of it and that I couldn't do anything else because I cared too much about this um and she said to me do not come home until you sign the lease <laughs> wow <laughs> um and, and she turned to Hayden and she said make Hayden's my business partner Ray's Ray's son and she said to him make sure that he's got coffee um, and I remembered a piece of advice that Ray had given me very, very early on in my career. Uh, and he said to me, Mark, this was when we were trying to get a big name chef to give us some credibility. Uh, and Ray said to me, um, Dan, if something's a hundred to one, all you have to do is do it a hundred times. And people miss that. Yeah, it's true. People don't play the math. And he was talking to me about getting a big name chef. And he said, if it's 100 to 1 that you're going to get one of these big names, then you call 100 of them and you knock on 100 doors and you walk in 100 restaurants. Because if it's 100 to 1, in one of those visits, you will pick up a customer. And I thought about that piece of advice 
when the factory was burning down and I just called everybody. I called everybody who I knew in the industry and I just said, it's Dan from Lake District. This is, this is what's happening. We're going to need to relocate as quickly as possible. You know, do you know anybody that's got a factory that we may be able to lease? Um, and after a lot of phone calls, um, I spoke to our veal farmer, actually, brilliant man called Andrew Barraclough. Um, and Andrew said, you need to speak to Steve Dunning because uh, Steve has a site which is available off Junction 38. So that, that's about an hour away from, from where our factory was at the time. Um, so I shot up to um, up to see Steve. I, I called him. I organised um, a meeting. Me and Hayden went up there, um, and we agreed terms on on leasing the factory that evening. So we burned down on the Saturday, and we reopened on the Monday. No way! That's and, crazy. Isn't it? And I remember. Um, I mean, we had some customers, Mark, ringing us on the Monday, and they didn't know we'd had a fire yet because we hadn't had a chance to sort of communicate it. So they would be ringing us and we'd be like, yeah, so, and they'd be like, you know, what happened over the weekend? And we'd be like, well, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. the factory burned down. Um, we are in a new factory. Ooh, uh, we, we don't have the full product range before <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, and, and we'd have that conversation. But, you know, um, in that, particularly that first week of moving into the new factory, I learned the true value of all the relationships that we'd built across a period of years because we had chefs ringing us up and saying, you know, Dan, Russ, and Hayden, Phil, you know, they were just saying, what do you want us to buy? You tell us what you want us to buy and we will put it on the menu. So whatever you have, whatever you had at the abattoir that you've you know, you've managed to transfer whatever you've got in stock. You tell us and we will buy it from you and um, pay you full price for it. And we got such incredible, incredible support. Um, and that was in the June. And then in December, we had Storm Desmond. Um, and I was, I was in London at the time. Uh, and I got a call from my, one of the other business partners. who was Steve, Steve Winwood. Steve's my uncle. And Steve was the accountant, and he said we've had a landslide, and it's come, it's come through the back of the factory. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we've had a landslide, and basically it's, it's come through the back of the factory, and it's buried uh, the lamb fridge in the pork fridge. And I thought he was winding me up because we've yeah. only just, we literally uh -huh. just recovered from the fire and got the product back to where it needed to be, and got the fridges running properly, and and the aging right. Um, and I honestly thought he was winding me up. Um, and he sent me pictures. Um, it was quite incredible, really. I think it was 10,000 tons or something that had rolled down off the hill and basically bust through the back wall of the factory and buried the stock. Um, and again, it was, it was just that the value of the relationships that we had. I mean, we had farmers turning up with figures to dig out the back of that factory for them. Really? They turned up, they brought all the equipment, they, they dug it out for us um, so that we could, you know, we could make things happen quicker. We had to basically split the factory in half so that we could operate properly and safely. So we had to just split it in half completely. Um, all the stock that was in the fridges that were impacted was obviously a write-off. Um, and we had to take half of the team around the back of the factory with shovels and the other half of the team are in the front of the factory and, and they're producing. Um, and we worked so hard. Um, we worked so hard because it was December. Um, and we had incredible support from our farmers and our customers again. Um, and I think that after those two instances, we realized that we could pretty much get through anything. Um, and I think that that's served us incredibly well you know all the challenges we've had since that we kind of realized that whatever anything throws at this team um this team will come through it amazing so where does covid rank then in your uh that, is that the third it happens in threes that's it you're gonna have an amazing 30 years ahead dan because surely there can't be any more than three but yeah how does how does that compare you have to you'd have to hope so wouldn't you uh <laughs> I, hope is, I hope it is the last one how does it compare i i think actually i think covid has been the most challenging I, I do. Um, I think probably the difference with uh, COVID is that everybody's been going through the same thing. Um, and you know what our industry is like. Our industry is an incredible industry. Um, I mean, I, I, I've spoke to 
our competition. You know, the people that we compete with day in, day out on a regular basis and we've given each other advice and we've maybe sold each other stock where we needed to because um, things are a bit thin on the ground or we have this huge order we can't fulfill. And and I think the difference with COVID is that everybody in the industry has, has pulled together and, and done everything that they can to support each other. I think it's a long way out of this. You know, I, I think we we have a lot to do in hospitality to recover from coronavirus but the difference between that and, and the fire and, and the landslide is that we're all in this together um, that's given me a, a great sense of comfort um, and I think that I've had brilliant advice from brilliant people um, and because of the industry that we're in I think we'll come back from this easier um, than we did the other two yeah Okay. Some some of the changes as a result of, of COVID, did, did you sell direct to consumer before and these boxes and all this, you know, the sort of meat that people can now buy direct? Was Is that, is that literally as a result of the uh, of the pandemic? It's literally as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, we, we were we were exclusive to, um, to restaurants and um, we had such demand for the product, I guess, that we, we, were, we were in a really lucky position. So if you, if you go pre-coronavirus, we, we had a waiting list of customers, basically. Um, and as such, we, we couldn't supply the public because we didn't have um, enough product to supply the demand that we had from our restaurants. Um, but as I said, when when the restaurants closed, it was like, you know, one day they're open and the next day they're closed. And that's how it happened in the first lockdown. And we had around a quarter of a million quid's worth of stock in the fridges and were sat there saying, OK, the restaurants are closed. <laughs> that's our only route to market, all of our customers are closed and we've got a quarter of a million quid's worth of stock in the fridge. What are we going to do? Um, and we just put it out on social media, basically. We had about 2,000 followers and we put it out and, and said, you know, um, we're going to supply the public direct. Just call the office if you'd like an order. And we did sort of set boxes to try and utilise the stock as efficiently as possible to make sure that, you know, we were selling enough of everything. Um, as opposed to lots of one product um, and it just got shared and shared and shared and shared and you know our customers were sharing it and saying you should buy meat from these guys are incredible they've never supplied the public before this is our butcher um, and that support basically got our message out there and the phones in the office were just absolutely off the hook we had sort of 10 or 12 people just just on the phones just answering phone calls and we were taking sort of manual payments with a card machine and then everything was handwritten every order was handwritten because we didn't have you know any infrastructure in place um uh, and the team at ldf were incredible actually through that period i don't know how we didn't drop an order or miss an order or wow. product wrong yeah. but they did a really really good job uh, and as i said you know second lockdown we decided to develop an e-commerce website so that we had a um, proper infrastructure to do it but we cleared all that stock so literally through that you know putting them posts out on social media and people sharing it we cleared all of that stock during the first lockdown Amazing, amazing! What can be done when you need to do it, isn't it? We 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 rally round. Will you continue to do this once you uh, once the restaurants reopen? Yes, we will um, because we have to. We we're a very loyal company, Lake District Farmers. Um, these you know these people, the general public, our customers, they've supported us. They've got our business through this. Um, they've allowed us to support our supply chain and to continue to buy um, from our farms um of course we haven't been buying as much as we would if the restaurants were reopened but they've still put us in the position to support our supply chain um so we can't turn our back on those people when, when the restaurants reopen we can't sell we're going to be exclusive to restaurants again because it, it just it just wouldn't be right and it's not the type of company that we are and um, i i do think that in the long term we will probably go to membership only in, in terms of our, the retail side of our business because that will allow us to control how much we sell and ultimately control the quality, which is why we always had a waiting list of customers for restaurants because we would never oversell something. We'll only sell it if it's perfect. We'll only let it go out the door if it's perfect. Um, so I think we'll have to go to membership only to allow us to control the amount of sales that go through. Um, but everybody who's purchased from us will automatically be given a membership. 
Yeah, interesting. And then you've done the boxes as well. You've teamed up with uh, various chefs. I think I saw three or four on your website. So you're actually doing these sort of, is, is that something that you're sort of reselling on their behalf or have you got them in to create these boxes specifically for you? How does that work? Um, so during the first lockdown, we, we teamed up with Howard Arms. Um, Sally rang me um, and said, should we do a box together? And we did a, a sort of a Howard Sunday roast box. And it was really, really successful. Um, but we only did it in London. We only had the sort of infrastructure to do it in London, really. So um, second time around, um, I had a chat with uh, with Jason Atherton. We had a chat with uh, Rachel from the Gavroche, and we teamed up with Michelle. Um, and we did go uh, London only at the beginning, but there was a lot of people who, who wanted us to go um, nationwide. Um, so we, we had to sort of adapt very very quickly and change the packaging and, and look at how we made that possible so that we could go nationwide and it was it was a real learning curve for us um but now we're in the position where actually we've, we've become really really good at it um and how it works is we'll take the orders to our website uh, we'll give those orders to the restaurant you know we'll say we've got I don't know, 200 boxes going out this week it's all set menu of course um the restaurants will um produce the food we will go down to the restaurant we will basically make all the boxes pack everything dispatch everything we take care of everything from a logistics perspective and a customer service perspective um so from from the restaurant's uh, restaurant's point of view it's about making sure that, that they produce the food to an incredible standard which of course you know they always do and we're honoured, really. You know, I mean, for, for a little meat company from Cumbria to team up with Michelle Rue and Marcus Waring, Jason Atherton, Goodman, um, it's been incredible for us, really. And, of course, it, it's really made people aware of who we are and sort of extended, um, I guess, the general public know more about Lake District Farmers because of those collaborations. So we'll be forever grateful. Well, yeah, and, li- and likewise them to you, I'm sure. It's just, you know, it's a great example, I suppose, of when these things work and it, it, it is symbiotic, isn't it? You know, they really need you to be doing this traditional farming to create the very best produce and and you need a route to market where people are willing to uh, to spend a few more quid. So, which we've got, to, we've got to draw to a close very shortly, but that probably brings us a little bit then to, to, the, to the future. And I suppose what people can do in general, you know, what, what what's your uh plea i guess to the public and not everybody clearly can can buy from you so yeah you know are, are you optimistic about the trajectory of of farming are you pessimistic about it and and to make it you know more positive than negative what would you ask either the public i suppose or the industry to do to help um i'm always optimistic i'm never pessimistic ever because uh, i think where where there's a will there's, there's totally a way um and, and i think as as we go through, you know, we tend to see that as we roll through the years, people are absolutely getting better educated on food. It's becoming more important to people. People are talking about it more. But my first message would be, you know, please, please buy British because um, in whatever context, buying British is, is more positive than anything else. Even if it is mass produced, it's still better to buy British for, for our agricultural industry. Um, but I think further further on from that, um, if you can, ask the question, where does it come from? How is it produced? How is the animal looked after? Try and understand that, try and understand what you're buying and try and make sure that you're buying responsibly and try and make sure that you are supporting somebody who's doing things in the right way. That The fundamental things that are important for me are that the animal is being looked after. The animal welfare absolutely comes first. Is the product sustainable? That, that's And is it properly sustainable? That, that, that's incredibly important. And then from a carbon perspective, are we being responsible? Is it kind to the planet? Are we buying from a source that is focusing on making sure that it does the right things for everybody globally? You know, it's so important. So if we could look at those three things before we purchase a piece of meat, I think that would be... That would be awesome. 
Agreed. I feel for the public because it's a challenging thing. You know, I, you and I were in the industry, and, he, and even I can struggle to get my head around it. Fish is one, you know, where the, some animals move. Don't, at least, at least you can, you, you know, your animals stay in the field they're supposed to, even on their own. But fish, you're like, you know, wh- wh- not only where, you know, where were they caught, but where have they come from? What size were they? Were, was it their breeding season at the time? You know, do you know if they were pregnant? You're like, my goodness, it's complex. So I guess we really need to rely on the the industry and the chefs being as well educated as well. I'd love to think that catering schools, and I don't know if they're nailing this yet, but I would love to think that they're, you know, they're really instilling this responsibility right at the point where people are being are being taught about food. And probably actually for the wider population, it probably needs to be done at schools, I guess. I think I think you're right, Mark. And I think one of the one of the things that colleges should be doing is engaging with suppliers. Um, you know, I, I remember going down to Furnace College, which is my local college, um, oh, maybe three, four years ago now, um, and doing sort of an hour session um, with the students down there. And it, it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. They really enjoyed it. Um, I think they did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that um, I think colleges and, and schools you know, should engage with suppliers, particularly if, if, you know, someone's at college and they're in a culinary setting and they're specifically learning about hospitality, whatever, you know, if it's industry specific. And let's get suppliers in to talk to these students and to talk to them about what responsible purchasing means, what sustainability means. Um, Let's make sure that they walk into the industry with that education already behind them. Um, I know from a Lake District Farmers perspective, We'd love to do that. We'd love to go into colleges and talk to students because it, it's fundamentally important for the future of the industry. So we definitely would. And I know loads of other suppliers who would absolutely do this. Amazing. Cool. All right. Well, look, we need to uh, to draw to a close, unfortunately. But just, you know, big, big thanks for, for doing what you're doing. I just think, you know, like I say, one of my favorite parts of the world uh, and to know that, yeah, those those beautiful, good human farmers, you know, following that sort of you know proper approach uh, that they they found this route and that you're helping them do that, I think is brilliant. So uh, yeah, hat, hats off to you. Uh, glad it's going well. Glad you've recovered from those various trials and tribulations, and and hope you come out the back of this COVID one in good shape. Where should people go if they want to follow your journey? If they want to buy some of the meats, uh, and and I suppose what question if if you are a restaurant, you know, do you think when you reopen you will be able to supply again, or are you going to go straight back in? to a, uh, a waiting list but yeah where should people go to find out more hey, i think initially we'll, we'll probably go back into a waiting list for restaurants i think um just while we work everything out our our priority will be to absolutely make sure that we're supporting our customers properly um, and giving them the quality that they need um, but hopefully um you know a short time after we reopen and we get everything re-established we'll be able to take on some new customers and um, from from a retail perspective you know people can pop to our website which is lakedistrictfarmers.co.uk um or to follow our story if you will we've got our um instagram which is um, lake underscore district underscore farmers so uh, if people want to have a look at our our farming videos and our journey, they can either go on our Instagram or they can go on our website and on the Our Farmers section and there's some brilliant um, videos of some of our producers just have a general look through the type of farms that we buy from and work with. Yeah, amazing. They are well worth a look. Okay, Dan, thank you so much. I will leave you to get on with your day. I'll pop in and uh, hopefully see you next time I'm in the lakes, but thanks so much for sparing the time and uh, best of luck. Appreciate that, Mark. Thank you very much. Are you still listening? Well done. An hour on farming in the Lake District, learning about things you never knew you needed to. Good work. Now I utterly adore having these conversations and learning from such warm and lovely people such as Dan. Thank you so much for joining me on the adventure. Now I'll be back in two weeks with the next show where at the opposite end of the spectrum we are off to chat to an international hotelier based in Hong Kong but with properties dotted around the globe. We'll be touching on different cultures in the global world of hospitality, but also looking at how different countries are managing COVID and how the performance of his estate in various parts of the globe can give us a good feel for what is going on. Should be a good one. Sign up to the newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk or hit the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice to make sure that you don't miss it. Okay, have a great couple of weeks. Cheers.